C.K. Chesterton, who was a Roman Catholic theologian, political analyst, once famously said that the true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. Now, while I do think there is a place in the Christian life to hate evil and to want to fight against evil, I think the sentiment, I think the sentiment is what I would say is generally true. We fight not because we so much just love destroying things, but because we love that which is true and good and beautiful. We want to be fighters in this world because we believe there are things in this world worth defending. There are things in this world worth fighting for. And our passage today is a reminder of the most important thing, the most precious thing in the world that is above all the most worth fighting for. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. First Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. When you're there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. First Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Thus saith the Lord. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This bar's reading of God's word. Please be seated. Most of the passage that we just got done reading falls under the category of what I call a glorious, Holy Spirit-inspired digression. I believe that it is a rabbit trail of sorts because it's not until verse 18 that we actually pick up on where we began in the last section. Verse 18 is where Paul gives Timothy, he reminds him of this charge that he gave him way back earlier than what we read last week. So most of this was sort of a digression until he gets back to this charge. And so I think it would actually be helpful for us to really get a, a, a total sense of the passage to work backward through it, to go with what he was intending to say and then see how that digression plays into it. And so what I want us to begin with is the end of the passage where the Apostle Paul introduces us to what we call the church militant. Read verse 18 with me. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. So apparently 
God, through someone, we don't know the circumstances of this prophecy, but apparently a prophecy was made about Timothy that young Timothy would, in fact, be called to God's service, that he would be a pastor. For some reason, it was important for God. Most pastors don't get this explicit of a call, but Timothy got a very explicit call uh, where God made it a matter of revelation. Uh, He likely needed to hear this. Um, He's about to get put into a very difficult circumstance where it's going to be hard and a lot of people are going to be doubting him and not wanting to listen to him because he's so young. So it was probably helpful to be reminded, just remember, you are the right man for the job, right? God told us so. Uh, They're going to despise him for his youth, and so Paul is calling him to this task. And because this task is so difficult, Paul decides to drape it with a military illusion, right? He begins by giving Timothy a charge, and the interesting thing about that word in Greek is that Outside of the Bible, it's a word almost exclusively used for military commandments. It's almost always used in military contexts. This is a word where a a sergeant is giving a commandment, a charge to a young lieutenant. And, and but to make it even more explicit, this you know that word charge is maybe a little implicit. But then he goes on to make it explicit. What is this military commandment? To wage the good warfare. Timothy has been charged to fight a battle as a soldier. That means that in Paul's mind, there's lots of different metaphors for us to see Christ. Ephesians 5 tells us to see him as a husband to the bride who is the church. We're told in 1 Corinthians, or in Ephesians, that he is the head of a body that is the church. And Paul is introducing us here to this idea that Jesus is the commander-in-chief of an army who is the church. We are all soldiers in God's army. And this is why theologians have oftentimes liked to take in the one church of God, the one holy Catholic apostolic church, and they like to describe her in two different phases. The resurrection is what we call the church triumphant, right? That's when the fight is over. That's when the battle is won. That's when we just enjoy the splendor of God. We enjoy the spoils of his war. And so when a person dies, they join the church triumphant. All the saints in heaven are no longer laboring. They're no longer fighting. They're no longer warring. They are in victory. So when you die, you are promoted to church triumphant. But as long as we are here on earth, we belong to what theologians have called the church militant. On earth, we are at war. We are in a battle. We are part of a military operation. We are in the church militant. Now, as I hope you understand, I'm speaking spiritually, right? I'm not telling you to go pick up a sword and start killing your neighbors and, you know, Christian jihad or anything like that. But just in case you are tempted to think I'm talking about some kind of physical conquest, let us remind ourselves how Paul describes the kind of warfare that Timothy is to engage in, verses 19 and 20. What are the weapons, what are the strategies of his warfare? Verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. So here, Paul gives Timothy this general way of how to engage in good warfare. It's not with carnal weapons. It's not with the sword. It's not with the machine gun. It's with faith and a good conscience. Now, just like in our military... Um, There are lots of different jobs to do, right? If you join the military, you become a soldier, but 
every soldier is given different jobs to do. And so, to some degree, it's hard for me to tell you how are you as an individual called to fight in God's battle. I can't really address that generally because the Holy Spirit has given each one of us different spiritual gifts. And God the Father has given each one of us a different calling. So fighting in God's warfare looks different for all of us in one sense. But when you join the military, everyone goes through boot camp. Right? It doesn't matter your rank. It doesn't matter. You all go through boot camp. So what does that mean? Even though there are different jobs and different assignments, there is still supposed to be this sort of basic level of soldiering that everyone needs to be acquainted with. Everyone needs to understand that here's the basics of how to fight. Now, I don't know what specific jobs you'll have, but here's some basics. Everyone at the end of the day is still a soldier. And the same is true when you're enlisted in God's army. You have different spiritual gifts, different callings and how you fight your warfare. But there are some basic ways that all of us need to be prepared. Some weapons, if you will, that you need to become comfortable with. They're common to all of us. And Paul gives Timothy, and by extension us, two of those general weapons. You fight with faith and you fight with a good conscience. Now, these can be hard to really precisely define. But in short... Faith is a sincere belief in Christ and his gospel. Faith is a true, sincere faith in Christ and the gospel. That's your strongest weapon. A good conscience, what is that? It's most likely referring to the assurance that you get from that sincere faith. And it's evidenced by good works, right? So our faith gives us assurance and that overflows into good works. So faith and works are ultimately both used... Um, by God for our conscience. Faith and good works bring us into a hope, into a sure conviction. My conscience is clear, we say. I know the truth. I'm walking in the truth. I am loved by God. Thus, in short, the most important way for every Christian to wage war is to sincerely believe the gospel and develop a good conscience through your salvation and the evidential works that follow. You fight with faith and good works. You fight with faith and a good conscience. Now, unfortunately, Paul has to remind us that not everyone fights the fight well. Like all kinds of warfare, even in the Christian warfare, there are casualties of war. So Paul, in order to warn Timothy about how serious this fight is, how difficult this fight is, has to remind him by name of two men, two of these casualties of war, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Now, we don't know much about these men. These names are repeated elsewhere in the New Testament, but just like in our culture where lots of people will have the same name, is the case in the Greco-Roman world too. So sometimes it's hard to know, just because you see the same name, is it the same person? So it's really hard to know if, if we know anything else about these men. But from what Paul has told us, we know one thing. They have rejected the weapons. They have rejected a sincere faith. They have rejected a good conscience. And that has led them to make shipwreck of the faith. Which we today just call apostasy. Now, um, we talked a few weeks ago, uh, and when we were still in the Gospel of John, about losing salvation. Sometimes people will turn to this to, to prove that. Even if that doctrine is true, I don't think this is a good text to prove it. Uh, the reason is because the word reject that Paul uses in verse 19, by rejecting this, this is a word that everywhere else it's used in the New Testament. It's never used of losing something. It's never used of having something and then losing it. It's always used of a passionate rejection of the, 
of the first time something is offered to you. So Paul is not saying that these men had a sincere faith and then lost it. He's saying they rejected it from the get-go. They never embraced the sincerity of true saving faith. They never embraced that good conscience. And because they rejected those things, what did it lead them to do? It led them to take this Christian faith that the apostles entrusted to them and shipwreck it. Run it aground to distort it. They have lied and distorted the Orthodox Christian faith because of their refusal to reach that sincere faith and good conscience. I like the way that one of the commentators I read this week put it. He said that these men experienced the doctrinal destruction resulting from a failure to arrive at true personal faith and good conscience so that their bogus belief in their unredeemed conscience resulted in total wreckage of the apostolic conviction Paul and Timothy championed. As a matter of fact, I think the ESV does us a disservice here. Um, The ESV tells us what is it that they shipwrecked. It says that they shipwrecked their faith. But what I found interesting, I'm no Greek scholar, but I can do a word study. The word study is not possessive. It's indefinite. Uh, It should be the faith. That's why some of your Bible translations, if you don't have the ESV, it might actually say that they made shipwreck according to the faith, or they shipwrecked the faith. It doesn't possess it theirs. Because the idea is not so much their personal belief is being shipwrecked. It's the Christian faith is being shipwrecked. The the, the Orthodox Christian faith, they have ruined it. The idea is that they have probably started to believe some sort of blasphemy and pass it off as, no, this is the Christian faith. Their failure to fight, the way Paul instructs us, led them to apostasy, to blaspheme, to abandon Christianity. And this is so serious that Paul actually has to remind Timothy that he had to dishonorably discharge these soldiers. In other words, he had to excommunicate them. They were kicked out of the church, which is the severe, the most severe, the final step of church discipline. They were removed from the church. And we know that because what does Paul say in verse 20 about them? He says, Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Handed them over to Satan is just another way of saying we've excommunicated them. We've kicked them out of the church. We know that from how Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 5. He says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you, For though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So here is a very clear context to this phrase, handing them over to Satan. What does it mean to be handed over to Satan? It means you have been removed. He goes on later in the passage to quote from the Old Testament, purging the evil from among you. Do not associate with those who bear the name of brother, yet live in unrepentant sin. So clearly the context is being removed from the church, and Paul describes that as being handed over to Satan. And I think the reason for that is because the idea is that outside of the boundaries of the army, once you go outside the camp, you're now in enemy territory. You're behind enemy lines. It's in the world where you lack the means of grace. 
you lack, God has established the church to be a protection for us. God has a special protection that he has over his people within the church. Once you are kicked out of that, you are put into the world where his protection is severely downgraded. So Satan can just play with you like cat and mouse. He can tempt you. He can torment you. He can destroy you. You lack the protection of the army. You lack the protection of God's grace. So to kick someone out of church is to essentially kick them out of the kingdom of God and let them enjoy Satan's emperor empire for a while. See how that feels. And remember, what's the hope? To punish them? To humiliate them? No, to bring them back in repentance and salvation. It is an act of service. It is an act of love that we give them over to Satan. Let him destroy them so that they remember repentance is better than this. Jesus is better than this. But what point does all of this serve? To some degree, it's probably to comfort Timothy, right? Paul's about to ask Timothy to do a very hard thing. And so Paul wants to remind Timothy, I'm not calling you to do anything I'm not willing to do myself. You need to go into Ephesus and you need to throw your weight around. You need to silence some men. You might even need to kick some men out. And I know that's going to be hard, but just know I did it too. I'm the one who had to remove Hymenaeus and Alexander. So I'm sure that to some degree this is to comfort Timothy. You're not alone in this fight. You're not out in the military by yourself, right? It's a hard and dangerous fight. Many people have quit this fight. And so the primary reason I think, though, is Paul is trying to encourage Timothy with this negative example not to quit. And by extension, he is commanding us, don't quit. Don't be like Hymenaeus and Alexander. Don't quit. Don't lose the faith. And this is where Paul's rabbit trail becomes really important. Right? Because in order to stay in a difficult fight... In order to have the motivation and the bravery and the courage to take on a dangerous fight, we need something worth fighting for. I I need something that makes this danger, that makes this effort worth it. Right? So if we're in God's army, what are we fighting for? Why is the danger worth it? Why not just be like Hymenaeus and Alexander and just go the easy route? And and we're going to eventually condense it into one, but I'm going to give you at the beginning two things that we fight for. Two things that make this fight worth fighting. We have two glorious, precious things that are worth defending. And the first one is the gospel itself. Point number one is that the gospel is glorious. The reason we fight is because the gospel is glorious. Look at verses 12 through 14 with me. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So last week, Paul ended by remembering his commission to be an apostle. And when he remembered that, because he was talking about his authority, he was leveraging his authority. He couldn't help but remember his conversion story also. Because for Paul, his conversion and his apostolic calling were basically linked. They essentially happened at the same time. So as he's remembering his call to be an apostle, he also remembers his conversion, his testimony. And so that takes him down a little trip down memory lane. And he reminds Timothy of his amazing testimony. He reminds Timothy of who he used to be. He taught 
and did evil things in God's name. That's blasphemy. He was a blasphemer of the highest order. He imprisoned and even sanctioned the killing of Christians. That's persecution of the highest order. And the whole time, he was prideful and arrogant about it. He was an insolent, persecuting blasphemer. That's who he used to be. Now, he does speak of doing these things in ignorance, but this is not the kind of innocent ignorance that we tend to associate with that word. He is not excusing himself. Paul is referring to this as what we call in court of law a culpable ignorance. This is an ignorance that stems from his hatred. It stemmed from his unbelief. That's why he said ignorance and unbelief. So he is not excusing his former sins. All he's trying to tell us is that he was so prideful and so haughty and so arrogant, he truly thought he was doing the right thing. He truly believed that it was good to persecute Jesus' people. It was good to deny the Messiah. He was sincere in his unbelief. And so because he was sinfully ignorant of the truth, God, rather than showing him judgment, pitied him. And he exposed him to a gospel that brings two things with him. This is the reason the gospel is so glorious, because the gospel always comes with two things. And the first one is grace. Paul tells us in verse 12 that God gave him strength, which is just a divine grace. He gave him strength or grace to make him faithful and turn him into an apostle. Now, I know it sounds like what he says when he says that the Lord judged me faithful. It sounds like he's saying, well, I was faithful. God saw that and then decided to make me an apostle. But he's not using the word judge there like that. The word judge there is basically conversion. God turned me into a faithful person. In other words, he's, he's just saying exactly what he says in 1 Corinthians 7. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. The Greek down here is almost exactly the same. It was God's mercy that made him faithful, that made him trustworthy. It was God's grace, God's judgment that made him faithful. And not only did God give him the strength to be faithful, but he also gave him the grace, as he says, to believe unto salvation in good works. God's grace overflowed, he says, with the love and good works that are in Christ Jesus. So for Paul, faith and good works are the result of God's grace. And this is why Paul is so clear in all of his letters, in all of his epistles, that faith and works cannot be the cause of saving grace. In other words, your faith and your good works cannot merit salvation for you. Because your salvation has to precede them. It is God's grace that has to give you faith. It is God's grace that has to give you good works. He has to do this in Christ Jesus. So this is why we teach in this church that you are not saved by your good works. You're not even saved by your faith. You're saved through it, but you're not saved by it. Your faith and your good works cannot merit your salvation because the grace of God gave those things to you. That's what the gospel offers us. It offers us salvation. It offers us faith. It offers us holiness. That's why it's glorious because it's a gospel of grace. We fight for a gospel that completely transforms us. Paul talks about himself in the past tense. I used to be a blasphemer. I used to be insolent. I used to be a persecutor, but I'm not anymore. What changed? Did I pull myself up by the bootstraps? 
Did I listen to a, a, a devotional video on YouTube and just get fired up and do better? God's grace changed me. That's the gospel we fight for. But it's not just a gospel wherein we receive grace. We receive something just as important. It's a gospel of mercy. It's grace and mercy. Look at verses 15 and 16. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Christ did a lot of things in his earthly ministry. We've been going through the Gospel of John. We've seen that. He did a lot of amazing things. And Christ's coming to earth has had a lot of good consequences in our world. But here, Paul is reminding us of the chief reason he came. He did a lot of good things. But this, verse 15, this is the chief. This is the thing we can never lose sight of. Verse 15, if, if you're a person who's okay marking your Bible, you should underline this. You should star it. You should highlight it. You should make a big deal. This is the thesis of our entire faith. It is the very heart of the gospel. The very thesis of our entire religion, the entire New Testament is this. A saying that's so true and so important, Paul would qualify it. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's called mercy. He didn't come to save righteous people. He didn't come to save the people that earned it. He didn't come to save the people that deserved it. He came and took on flesh and died to save sinners. Blasphemers like Paul. That's called mercy. And Paul takes on this phrase, verse 15 is known for this phrase that I, of whom I am the foremost or the chief of sinners, you've probably heard it called. Now, I, I am one who believes that this is sort of a general phrase that we should all embrace. There's a debate in the church about this. I, I think that Paul is trying to offer us this kind of humble disposition that I think every one of us should look in the mirror and brand that title on ourselves, the chief of sinners. But there's no doubt that Paul is, even if he's saying something maybe a little dramatic to apply it to everybody, he's being mostly serious here. He really does see himself as being uniquely wicked. Like you, you think your past was bad. You know, there's a lot of people in here who didn't have the, the benefit that I had of growing up in a Christian home. So many of you lived very worldly lives until Christ saved you. And I'm sure you did a, a lot of really bad things. But I promise you, you weren't as bad as Paul. I promise you. That's what Paul is saying here. You think you were a bad sinner? I was worse. That's why God wanted to save me. Because when he saves me, it becomes an example of just how deep his mercy is. Just how wide his patience is. It's an example for all of those who will believe. What is Paul saying? Paul's testimony is a reminder that as long as a person has breath in their lungs, there is hope for them. We are so quick as human beings to get discouraged and to give up on people. I, I wonder who are the people in your own life that you've stopped praying for? There's just no hope. Do you know how silly it sounds for us to pray for peace in the Middle East? We're praying for Hamas to be converted. We're praying for Jews who hate Christ. Let me tell you something. This is a rabbit trail. This might offend you, but I'm here to offend you. Muslims have a higher view of Jesus than Jews do. Just so you know, Muslims have a higher view of Jesus than Jews do. They hate Christ. Both of them. 
and they hate each other. And it seems so unrealistic to think that a Hamas terrorist or a Jewish blasphemer could possibly be saved. And Paul says, you're not allowed to think that. I'm the proof. I was the Jewish blasphemer. I was the terrorist. We're not allowed to give up on people. We do not have permission. So I I would really challenge you. Who are the people in this week that you've stopped praying for? Start praying for them. Start praying for them. I'll just give you one personal example. This is outside of my notes, but I think we have time. My dad just recently was blessed to take a trip to to Greece. Uh, he, He never really even had you know, a desire to go, but someone in the church offered to take him and he took it and I'm glad he did. And I had this really sinful thought. So they, they did a tour and their, their tour guide, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name, but he's kind of a, a nominal Muslim named Hakan. And so this is a, a tour guide who knows in some degree, he doesn't know the theology, but he knows the stories of the Bible inside and out. He has to because he's taking Christians on tours to all of these famous sites and telling them why this should matter to you. So this guy knows the book of Acts basically memorized. I mean, it's just crazy. And my dad preached the gospel with him. And, and I just got to thinking, so here's a Muslim whose entire job is to tour with Christians. Every single day, he's with Christians talking about the Bible. How many times do you think this guy has heard the gospel? How many times do you think this guy has read the gospel? Probably a lot. He still doesn't believe. I remember having this thought. There, there's no way this guy would ever believe. If, if he would have, he would have already. It's hopeless. And then I got to preach this text this week. Hakan's situation is not hopeless. God came into the world to save people like Hakan. He came into the world to save people like the people that we've quit on. And why? What does that tell us? Our gospel is a gospel of grace. It's a gospel of mercy. I ask you rhetorically, is that worth fighting for? Do we want to lose that? Which of the world's gospels do you want instead? This is a glorious gospel, and it's worth fighting for. That's what Paul's trying to tell Timothy. This gospel is worth the fight. But then he immediately transitions very logically into the next step, because here's the thing. A glorious gospel cannot come from a lame God. A lame God, a God who isn't glorious, cannot give us a glorious gospel. So if our gospel is glorious, what does that mean? Our God must be glorious too. So what are we fighting for? If if I were to make a banner for the army of the church, it would say, for God and gospel. We fight because our gospel is glorious, but we fight above that because our God is glorious. Look at verse 17. This reminder of the gracious and merciful gospel leads Paul into this doxology, which is a praise. Verse 17. To the king of the ages immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Not only is our gospel glorious, our God is glorious. Our God is the king of the ages, which makes him sovereign. He has all authority. And the fact that he is the king of the ages is a Hebrew way of saying that he is eternal. He has no beginning and he has no end. He is outside of time. He is outside of succession and movement. He is completely outside of all of that. He is eternal. He is the eternal king. And he's also immortal, which means he cannot cease to exist. He cannot die. And implied in this doctrine of immortality is what we call the doctrine of immutability, which means God cannot change. Because what is death? 
Death is a process of change. You move from one state of being to another. God cannot die because he cannot change. He cannot move from one state of being to another. He is the eternal I am. Not the I will be. Not the I was. I am. He is always immutably, unchangeably in his same state. And that's why he cannot die. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, the Bible says. The book of James says that he is without shadow due to change. He is immortal. He is immutable. But the text says he's also invisible. Why is that a good thing? Why are we praising God for being invisible? As we just saying, it is only the splendor of his majesty that hides him from us. Why is this a good thing? Because his invisibility is a reminder of what we call his transcendence. He cannot be seen because he is so far above and beyond creation. He's not just a, a piece of material in the created order. He's outside of the created order. He's too transcendent for us to see. Our eyes don't have the capacity to see him in his glory, in his majesty. He is hidden from our creaturely created temporary eyes. He is above us. And then Paul even goes in to remind us to say, by the way, he's the only one. All of these attributes I just got done listing, you know who he shares these with? No. He's the only God. There is none like him. That's why we fight. This is why we're Christians. Because there's no God like our God and there's no gospel like our gospel. We fight because our religion is worth defending. We fight because we love so much that which is behind us. We love what we are defending. We fight for God and for gospel. And so if you wanted just a simple takeaway, what is this long passage about? What am I taking home with me today? It's this. God's gospel is worth fighting for. This is what I want you to know today. This is what I want you to believe today. Christianity is hard, but our God is so glorious and so patient and so merciful. And he has given his son to die for our sins. That God and that message is worth all of the struggles and the conflicts of his life. It's worth it all. And so let me conclude by reminding you that we are at war. Forgive me. We are at war whether you like it or not. There's a famous adage during World War II that you might not be interested in the war, but the war is interested in you. We are in war whether you like it or not. So consider this sermon my recruiting pitch to enlist you in the church militant. This Christian life will not be easy. It will be one of conflict and trial and pain and struggle, but I'm here to tell you the fight is worth it. It's worth it because our God is worth it. It's worth it because our Savior is worth it. It's worth it because our gospel is worth it. And so when the going gets tough, when you feel like quitting, maybe remember Paul. Remember how gracious and merciful our glorious God was to such a wicked sinner like him. His sins were many. But God's mercy was more. Or better yet, maybe think of yourself as the chief of sinners. Who would remember? What love would remember no wrongs you have done? What patience would wait as we constantly roam? Praise the Lord, though our sins be many, His mercy is more.